Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. I am back with part two with Daniel from Flow. You know, we were talking about feedback as we were wrapping up last time. I thought it might be interesting to talk about, you know, feedback specifically at Apple and, and how you deal with real-world customer feedback in the development process. Because at a place like Apple, you're you're getting feedback from such a large swath in a huge quantity of people. Yeah, absolutely. And happy to jump into that. Just wanted to say as well, thank you so much for having me back on. It was awesome to chat with you the first time around. So I've been really looking forward to this. So thanks, Eric. Yeah, so on the Apple note, I mean, so I, I got to work on two separate pieces of the kind of design team or design challenges at Apple. And those were the marketing site. And the reason I call that out is, you know, I think the way Apple approaches marketing is, they are not looking to incorporate or really for any external feedback to validate any of what they're doing. It's very much internally driven. And they're really trying to have kind of a singular point of view and trying to, you know, and they kind of, they, they're able to nail that because they have it down to a science, you know, and it's, it's really an art. And so it's incredible to be able to take this art form and make it something that's repeatable. But, you know, they have it down to a science of how they can, you know, take a product that I think to consumers can be really mystifying. Maybe an example that would be like the HomePod. Like if you look at it, it's not really clear what the heck it is or what features it is. And yet they're able to kind of, one, design a product that has this amazing, you know, kind of experience and attention to design weave through it, but then they're also able to break that down from a marketing perspective. And as we talked about before, weave in really incredible copywriting, really great, just kind of high level sales and marketing thinking of how do you position this? How do you describe it? What do you call this? Where do you show it? So people understand how they might use this in their house. And so just on the marketing side, I just wanted to make the point that I think, um, you know, and this is generally more true for marketing than product work, but Apple definitely was not looking for feedback on that marketing side. And it was very much kind of confidently driven internally. On the product side, it was, uh, there was a good mix of feedback. And I would say the one thing that I really appreciated, especially in hindsight, about the way Apple approached incorporating customer feedback is I think today, a lot of the startups that I talked to just way over index on customer feedback. And I think what, you know, if you've kind of built up a body of experience of working on different products, working at different companies, you realize really quickly that there are times where customer feedback is immensely helpful. Sometimes it's, you're looking for more quantitative feedback. Sometimes you want more qualitative feedback, but there are times where it's really, you know, important. And I can give some examples of that, at how we've approached that at places like Flow. But then there are also times where it's just not super helpful or where if you listen to that feedback, it technically all cancels out. And so I think what Apple got right was you don't want feedback to fill a void of a lack of vision, a lack of clarity about what you're building, or to replace an internal point of view about how how you want to build this and why you think that's the right approach. So for me, I think what I took away from Apple at a really high level is you want to be opinionated. You know, why is that important? Because the best products are singular. They feel like a single voice or a single idea as opposed to this cacophony of different things that are interacting with one another. And I don't know, you're not really sure what to take away from it. And so I think it you need to still be internally driven, but then what you want to do is bring in customer feedback, especially at the earliest stages. And I can give an example of that. 
after I kind of share this bit, but especially at the earliest stages to frame up how you're going to build and almost just gut check that you're approaching it the correct way. I think it's so important to be opinionated. Yeah. So the example. Yeah. So the example that's probably the best illustration is one of the projects I got to work on when I was at Apple was, uh, this was shortly after the iPad was released. And I was brought on to think about what the Apple store experience would look like as a native app on iPad. And so at that point in time, you know, kind of take everybody back in time, iPad had just come out. Apple did not have a ton of native apps and they definitely didn't have anything from apple.com as a native app. So, you know, today there's the Apple store app. You can use that on your iPhone or your iPad that didn't exist at the time. And so they knew that they wanted to bring that experience in a native app to iOS broadly. So what we worked on first and foremost was kind of the thing that we needed to be nailed in order for them to move this over. And this is important. And I think something I'll try to come back to today a few times is just blending in how to look at something from a business perspective and then how to look at it from a design perspective and how to kind of blend those two things together and why that's important. But the experience that we worked on related to that app was customizing a MacBook or customizing kind of any, you know, it could be an iMac, it could be a MacBook Pro, MacBook Air. And the reason we did that is because that was the number one revenue source for Apple. They, I don't know if this is still true, but at the time they made more money off of people customizing computers than they made off of kind of any individual sales. And it was also really complicated. You know, you had to, and they've, you know, refined this relentlessly over the last 10 plus years now, but, you know, you have to make a lot of choices in quick succession and you want to try to make sure people don't get fatigued. People don't, you know, people feel like they're moving forward. People feel like they're being presented with really simple options. They don't end up in this quagmire of like, oh my God, now do I need to take an hour and go do research on processors? <laughs> so it's a complicated job to do. So we were brought in to kind of basically explore that and try to figure it out. And so the way that we approached that was, you know, again, we started as a small design team. And this was another, you know, core thing at Apple was if you were working on a problem, they were huge proponents of small teams. So I think there was maybe five or six of us in the room and that was maybe one or two art directors, maybe a creative director and a handful of, of designers working on it. And then we'd have copywriters and, and people that would kind of pop in and out and be working on other projects. But we started first by, you know, and I think this is really important, goes back to my earlier point. We started first by forming our own opinion about what we wanted to build. So we all came into that project with a ton of you know, pretty strong opinionated ideas about what we didn't like about the current experience doing that online on the Apple online store. We had ideas of cool, interesting ways, you know, almost at the like form factor kind of wireframe UX level of different ways to structure the experience. So we had a bunch of ideas there. And so we did a bunch of design explorations. And what I didn't know at the time when I started, but, but it's how we approached it on this project. And my understanding is it's pretty common at Apple is they kind of try to bias for feedback earlier on in the process rather than later. And I think there's a couple things, there's a couple reasons that's interesting and it's important. One is if you kind of, you know, withhold sharing anything with customers or potential customers until very late in the cycle, you just get very different feedback. People are reacting to stuff that's very high level, very fleshed out. 
people are, you know, and so they're more likely to give you like super granular, almost nitpicky feedback as opposed to high level, you know, helpful, broad, open-ended questions and ideas, you know, and then there's like logistically, I just don't think it's great to kind of have poured in a ton of time, energy, and effort to then share it with customers and maybe figure out that you're off on on the wrong track and you need to change things around. So what Apple did was they did it really early on in the process. So, you know, we had done all these design explorations and then we put together was basically kind of user research study that happened over two days in San Francisco. And what we did was, and this, when I say we, I I really mean that the company that we worked with to do this kind of user research, but what they ended up doing was finding two kind of cohorts of customers. One was people who had recently gone through the customize a Mac experience on the Apple online store. So, you know, what we were looking for from that group is what did they like? What didn't they like? And how did this new experience that we were kind of thinking through compare and contrast with what they had just gone through? And that's super helpful. But if you just interviewed that group, you're obviously, you're going to get, you know, kind of certain biased feedback. And so the other group that we interviewed was people who intended to buy a new Mac at some point in the next six to 12 months. And so we knew that they were going to go through this process. Some of them had bought a Mac before, some of them hadn't. And so what was helpful about that is you had people who were kind of anchored in the current experience and you had people that were, didn't have any of that anchoring, but really intended to buy a Mac. So we knew that they weren't going to quibble or fight over, I don't know, any of the like Mac versus PC stuff. And they were going to just have helpful stuff about like, oh, well, when I do this, this is what I would like to see, or this is what is really confusing. So we got those two groups of people. We interviewed them over two days and all of the design team, you know, it was, it was kind of one of those, like if you've ever <laughs> seen a TV show where it's like an FBI or police, you know, interrogation room, it's kind of like that. They have basically, there's a user researcher in the room. It's not us on the team, which is also really important. It's an objective person who's really approaching it almost as like a journalist, like a journalistic endeavor. They're walking this customer through the experience and we're showing largely wireframes. It's not really anything they can click through at this point in time. And basically asking them to do two things. One, narrate, and this is not going to be surprising for most people, but narrate what's going through your head, what you're thinking, what you're seeing, what you're feeling as you're going through that. And then two, they would just ask really big open-ended questions. So not leading questions, not questions really trying to seek for an answer, just questions to kind of elicit a broad range of feedback from people that we could take in and process on our own. And we were all behind this like double-plated piece of glass. So we could see what was going on. We could hear what was going on, but they didn't know we were there. And it, it was really helpful. And I think what was great about that process is one, it was very objective. You know, we weren't in the room. We weren't kind of showing our babies to these customers and, and I don't know, being defensive with any of that feedback. We were detached from it in a way, which was really helpful. You know, we had this broad sense of feedback from these two cohorts of different customers And just the idea of, you know, kind of making it a really comprehensive review where you have multiple cohorts that are going to have different perspectives. You have someone interviewing them that's an objective party. I think all those things I took away is just really good best practices. And I can share one other story about like one really interesting insight, um, if that would be helpful. Yeah, that sounds great. Pause there. Let's do it. So the, the thing that was, one thing that surprised me, maybe I'll kind of phrase it that way, going through this process was, 
you know, I kind of, I don't know, I still see this so often when I talk with designers, when I work with design teams, especially in startups, where it's almost like people are, when they're going to customers and sharing something, they're really looking for customers to give them some sort of an answer. They're not looking for just kind of broad feedback that they can then take and kind of percolate on and try to read between the lines and find patterns between what different kind of customers are saying. They're almost looking for like, this is what we're grappling with, or this is what we want an answer for, answer this question for us. And I think that's totally the wrong way to go about it. And I think if you approach it open-ended, again, like I said, you're not asking leading questions, you are asking very broad open-ended questions. And, you know, I think an important thing in the back of our minds as we were going through this process is we were doing this to gut check what we were doing. So we had already done the piece, the super important piece of the design process where we did broad exploration. We formed our own point of views about what we wanted to try, what we thought would work, what we thought could be interesting. Now we wanted to gut check that and see how far off we were or see what we might be missing. And, you know, and and to do that, I think doing it early on in the process, doing it in this open-ended way was really helpful. One thing that came out of one of the interviews that was just fascinating to me is it bubbled up across a number of different customers was one, just things that I would never have thought or uncovered that really shaped a lot of how I approached that problem. It came directly from customers. And one of those was repeated theme from many of these customers were were that they didn't really feel like reviews from customers in the Apple online store, if we showed those during the checkout process was going to be helpful for them because they felt like, why would I trust this? I kind of want to open up a separate tab, maybe go to Amazon, maybe go to Google, look up different types of reviews. And so I think even though, you know, for Sure, for most people listening, you think of Apple and you think that's the best brand in the world. Of course, it's trustworthy. The majority of customers, I think, are just a lot more skeptical than you might think they would be. And so what's helpful to know in that regard is it made us understand that a natural part of this checkout process was people are likely going to come back multiple times. So maybe we should allow them to save something that's midway through and come back to it later on. Customers are also likely because it's a very big purchase. And what we found is people that were older, say like someone in their 40s or 50s, they loved being able to go online without any pressure, look at all the options, put something together. But then as soon as it came to putting in their credit card information, they were like, absolutely not. Why am I going to hand over thousands of dollars in this huge purchase for me? And I get you know nothing in return. Like I want to go to the store. I want to talk with somebody. I want them to hand me this laptop. And so I think it opened our eyes into the fact that, yes, you know, we're all obviously younger, you know, for our generation, I think kind of doing this stuff online feels really natural for a lot of people. It doesn't. And you need to keep that in mind because I think whether you like it or not, that stuff is going to happen. So even if you want people to complete this checkout process online, it's likely not going to happen in all those cases, you know? And so the things that we brought up was, you know, it it really helped clarify like what data should we show people around reviews and what shouldn't we, how do we make sure that people feel like these reviews are third-party objective reviews? How do we make sure people can potentially save something so they can come back to it multiple times? And then how can they, if they want, how can we make it an easy option for them to do all the customization online, but then almost print out a ticket or send it to the store or be able to print out an order and carry that in and have somebody make that computer for them. And so I think those were things that the reason I share those is all super interesting, all super unexpected. And I think we're everyone on the team unanimously was like, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't see that happening. And third, all we would have only uncovered if we had done this early on in the process. And if we had done this very, we're just looking for broad qualitative, you know, insights in order to shape our process. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I've enjoyed all this discussion about your time at Apple uh, and the overview of Flow. Now, I think it would be interesting to talk about you know Flow a little bit more, the product team, how many product managers are there, and and how you look at frameworks for building and shipping products. So maybe let's start with the first question there. You know, tell us about the product team at Flow today. Sure. It's a very small product team. So, you know, our team in general is pretty small. And I think that one experience that a couple things that kind of maybe help explain that is I've always enjoyed, I want to try to have kind of the smallest team possible. And something, a term that I always constantly come back to is this idea of talent density, where if I can choose between having a 25 person team where everyone's pretty good at their job or a 10 person team where everyone's 10 out of 10, I would much rather do that kind of smaller team. Everyone's an expert at what they're doing. And I just think that leads to better results. And I think as as long as you can get away with a smaller team, I think it's really important. So we have a small team at Flow. Our team is under 20 people at this point in time. Uh, We have two people on the product side that kind of act as product managers. And, you know, I can talk about that, like something that's been interesting to me at multiple points in my career is just how almost like empty the word product manager is like one that, you know, even if that title exists at 10 companies, it's likely that the job is different at all 10 of those companies. And, you know, some, in some organizations, product managers set the vision in other organizations, they act as a producer, kind of making sure that everything's happening really well and freeing up the engineers and the designers and the copywriters to focus on what they do best and handle all the kind of logistical details And that's part of, I think, you know, how we approach it at Flow is it's probably 50% producer. And that's a term people may or may not be familiar with. It's super common in the advertising and marketing world. But a producer is basically just, it's a role and it's a recognition that shipping anything is incredibly difficult. And it takes a huge amount of coordination. You have to constantly be debugging. Are we going fast enough? Are we going slow enough? This thing's taking forever. What can we do to speed it up? Oh, we have questions over here. We need to change this approach. So there's all this stuff to navigate. So I think that's definitely how we look at our product team is probably 50% of their work is just making sure that everything's running really smoothly and making sure that what we're working on is, uh, you know, is ideally going to ship on time. But more than that, it's just going to be a great experience for everyone on the team. And no one's going to be banging their head and frustrated and feel like they're battling up against problems or have to debug stuff on their own. And then the other 50% is our product team does a lot of initial research kind of putting together, we call them specification docs sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it's probably the best word that we do. But what the, the way that we kind of think of what the product team can do is they're not going to have, you know, necessarily final say on what ships or what doesn't ship or what the best approach for this is, because I think that is better left to the designers and the engineers that are on the front lines kind of figuring that stuff out. But what they are going to do is I think the, and and part of this is probably unique to our company. It's also part of just how I think the kind of product role works best based on my experience. But what I often find is, you know, engineers and designers are, experts at what they do. They enjoy doing that. They want it. They typically, in my experience, I would say 80% of engineers and designers I work with, they don't really want to handle anything else. They just really want to focus on what they do and make sure that they can be great at it because that's where they draw a lot of pride and satisfaction in their work. They're also tend to be pretty disconnected from customers, you know, and I, that's not a positive. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that you can do to try to mitigate that or help that. 
But the way that we think of, of the kind of the product team is one, they handle all of our customer inputs. So we have a feedback board and a bug report board. Uh, we use a, a product called Kenny that we really like. So, and that's a whole thing that has to be managed. You know, at any point in time, there's hundreds of feedback items and feature requests and bugs that are inside there that are all being submitted from customers that we have to look at and triage and merge. They're also the other big piece of feedback that we have is you know, coming from support requests coming from, and some of that is like, you know, very specific and it's typically bugs. Bugs will be a very specific thing that'll come from a customer request, or it'll be this thing that no customer has ever said this, but here is a type of thing we hear all the time. And here's the root of that problem. And how do we try to solve that? So they handle our customer inputs into that process. And then what they'll handle is putting together these specification docs. And so what that is, is give you an example of something we did recently is in our app, you know, whether you're in a product board or a task list, something that is super common that we want to make a great experience is for people to edit something inline. So if they're looking at a task list, say they have 50 tasks, you don't want to have to click into a task to edit it there. You want to be able to edit things in line. And we had, you know, some support for that in some places, but it was missing in other views and it just wasn't cohesively great. And so we wanted to make it this cohesive thing that, you know, anytime you saw something in the app, whether it was an assignee or a due date, you could click on it and edit it. So what the product team did there is one, they looked through Canny, they looked through, you know, kind of trends and customer feedback we were seeing through support to try to look at what are the problems that we hear from customers today with inline editing. That's one piece of data. Another one was going through the app themselves and basically owning like, here's where it's inconsistent. Here's where it's pretty great. Here's where it's bad. Almost just an analysis of kind of how it works today. That's another data point. And then the third one was kind of where do we want to go? And the way that we handle that is kind of discussions on the design and engineering side. And then they'll ultimately try to weave those together into a document. And what this specification document looks like, at least at Flow, is it will lay out what we're building. It'll lay out if there are multiple phases of work, which is you know kind of at the tail end of planning, but something that sometimes is in the world of product managers, but often isn't, is things like should this all be worked on at once? Should this bucket of work be broken up into two sprints? Can we do that? Does it even make sense? Can we ship half the features and functionality and then another half? And so what that product spec looks at is what are we building? Why are we building it? What are the problems that exist today, ideally with exact word for word quotes from customers? And I could talk more about that, but I found over the course of my career that uh, it's super, super important to just have feedback shared in customers' own words whenever possible, because it gives you a sense for how they're feeling, how they're expressing it, how angry or upset or okay or whatever they're feeling about this issue with your product. Then what's the potential solution and how are we going to approach it? You know, and, and at Flow, we work in weekly sprints. So we'll sprint for one week. It's a little bit more complicated than that. We have what's called a four-week cycle. Then in within that cycle, there's a sprint that will happen. And a sprint is always one week in length. And so they'll basically try to take this bucket of work that we're going to do, work with our director of engineering to basically break that out into something. So the output of our product team is... What's the feedback we're hearing from customers? What's the problems that exist today? How are we going to be solving that? And how are we going to be able to execute on that? And then once that stuff is handed off, then they're kind of in debugging producing mode. Yeah, I think that that's helpful. And I think we covered most, if not all, of what I asked. Uh, we even got into the story on uh, why you want feedback in the customer's own words. And I think that is really important, right? Because anytime you have people 
interpreting the feedback, there ends, ends up being inevitably some unintentional bias added to it, right? I, I, unintentional bias, I find more than anything, it just, people tend to soften it. So in my experience, you know, like in go, this may be a note for anyone listening. If you have a support team at your company, go and make friends with one or multiple people or all of the support team and talk with them. And they will share with you super honestly and openly, just customers hate some stuff that exists in products today. And what typically happens is when that feedback makes its way from a support team or a feature request to the product team, it's kind of, it's softened so that it's like, oh, this isn't perfect today, but here's what it is. And I don't think that's great because I think it's just really important that people understand viscerally how do customers feel about this, warts and all. Yeah, I I think that is a good point. And I think it's good for product managers, product leaders to actually interact directly on the support channel sometimes because then you hear it direct too. Well, and here, so here's a, you know, and this is partially because we're such a small company, like I mentioned, but our actual head of product, also the support team reports into her. So she manages the support team. So she's hearing every single day, all of the feedback and all the stuff that we're getting from customers. And then she's also managing a team of kind of product managers that will then put that stuff together. And that definitely will not work forever. And it, you know, works really well at our scale, but that's been pretty magical. And I think whenever structurally you can try to improve or solve a problem that way, it's not a bad thing to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, you're, you're talking about the team. Talk to me a little bit about hiring and specifically hiring product managers. What do you look for? Yeah, it's, so in my experience, it's super subjective. And again, like, so it's, uh, yeah, I guess maybe I'll try to back out into like, what are the things that I look for and why? I think I feel really strongly that product managers are not product visionaries. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I think, again, any company building a product, any team building a product needs to have a point of view. But I think, you know, just a classic leadership principle, whether you look at, you know, the military or whether you look at corporations is making sure that people have buy-in and how do, how do you get buy-in? Well, it means that everybody is able to contribute and feels like they have some of their fingerprints on the solution and on, you know, the kind of thought process of how do you solve this problem? And so I think that one thing I, I am against is this idea that that shouldn't come from the team. It shouldn't be a team discussion. It shouldn't be something that everybody buys into and it should just come from one individual. And I'm just to be super clear, I'm equally opposed to the design visionary that comes and shares an idea and has to be implemented this way. I think anytime you have an environment where there's one person or one party that kind of has the vision, I don't think it's super great. So I'm not looking for product visionaries. And that immediately, at least in my experience, that eliminates a decent portion of product managers. And I think then what I'm looking for is people who they, one, have a sense for what a great product is or what a great experience is that, you know, syncs with how I view the world and how our team, you know, views the world and the kind of products we're interested in building. And that's super subjective. But, you know, some of the questions that I ask there, you know, I think you actually asked me one of these is, you know, kind of like, what's a great product experience you've had recently? Walk me through something that you used recently that just delighted you or surprised you. And like, just talk to me about that a little bit. What are some brands that you admire? And I think on that, on, on, in that question, I definitely give bonus points when people have an original answer, because I think it takes a little bit of guts and I want to work with people that have their own point of view. So I'm definitely going to appreciate an answer to those questions that surprises me as opposed to something like, you know, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or something that I don't know, just doesn't, I don't know if you've really thought through that enough. 
that's what that's yeah, one I love type Tesla, of I love iPhone, you know, all those. Yeah. That... It's like everybody does. That's good. <laughs> tell me something that's surprise, you know, tell me something that's surprising. I will also, you know, I want to definitely get their understanding and understand their perspective of how they see their role. You know, how do they, where have they seen things go really well for them when they've worked on projects as a product manager? Where have things gone poorly? You know, just to understand how they see it. Because again, I think, and I had this experience probably most prominently at, at Square, but at Square, there was two positions that we were hiring for kind of all the time that were just so difficult to find great candidates for. And that was someone, you know, kind of on the information architect user experience side. Those again are like vapid titles. And we would find that, you know, we would get 10 candidates that all had that title. And then we would talk to them about what they do. And sometimes you'd be like, oh my God, you're a graphic designer. How do you have a user experience? How do you have a user experience title? And so there's just a lot of title mismatch. And then the other one was product manager, because again, it's different at every company. And so I just want to understand what that is. And then the last piece that I would say is I'm really looking for somebody who sees their job and is excited and will excel at it's it's almost like the product manager role in some sense like the United Nations. You know, they need to bring together all these different contentious parties. You know, you've got somewhat heavy-handed customer feedback coming from support, people that are really angry about something. Maybe they, maybe what you're hearing from customers completely disagrees with your own sense internally of that this is a great solution, but customers are telling you that it's not. So you need to have, you know, that needs to have a seat at the table. Engineers need to have a seat at the table. And I, I think typically there, it's like, how can you make it so that things are as baked as possible when they make their way to engineering? How do you make sure that they're involved early on in the process so that they know what's being built and they understand the thought process behind it? And they're not just being handed stuff to implement. And you have to bring designers to the table. And so I think they need to be really good at facilitating those discussions, making sure that where we land is something that people are excited about. And sometimes people are less excited. Sometimes they're more excited. You're not always going to land on something where everyone feels equally excited about it. But I think they need to be a party that can kind of like intermediate all of that and get that, get that group to function really well in practice day in and day out. So how does the skill to pull out or create differentiation as part of a, a product product line, you know, fit into that, especially in some of these markets that might be very competitive? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I, it, I mean, again, I think, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I have never seen it work well where there's, you know, an, when you're getting, so say you're getting ready to kick off work on a project and there is already a really crisp idea in this initial brief of how things are going to be differentiated. I feel like the differentiation always has to be kind of discovered in the process. And so in my mind, I think the way that I think about that is you, you know, this goes back to, I think, some of my previous comments about Apple is you need to bias for having a lot of time up front for exploration. Why is that important? Because exploration equals serendipity and you'll find unexpected answers and unexpected solutions and interesting ideas that you wouldn't have if you just have to kind of ex- go from problem to solution in a straight line. I think you want to give people the time to zigzag, you know, and there's this concept that I really like in Chinese philosophy that, you know, um, you kind of orbit around the problem. So you're understanding it from 360 degrees. So if you imagine almost like a planet 
in a moon going around it. You know, you're kind of, you're the moon, you're orbiting around this problem, around this idea, you're seeing it from different perspectives and you're slowly getting closer and closer and closer to it, to having what you feel like is a really successful solution. And I think it's a really great analogy for why you want to build in time for exploration, because you just want to give people a lot of reps, a lot of time to approach the problem from different perspectives and and see where they land. And a lot of time to synthesize the best ideas from the team into something that's coherent at the end of the day. So, I, you know, I think, so I would say it's something that's more found in the process and something that's defined up front. But I would also say too, I think, again, that goes into that initial hiring and screening of their, I think it's a very, some people really philosophically are bought into the idea that differentiation is important. And some people don't think it's important at all. And I think in my mind, that potentially comes from, I think differentiation is more important from a business perspective than from a product perspective, or at least it's felt more when you're looking at a problem from a business perspective. And what I mean by that, I mean that you know, for anyone who's in a CEO chair, you know, you just have a really visceral sense of the need to be different from competition so that you can market something that's different. You have something that's different at the end of the day. You have to thread that through a lot of different layers in the company. So I would say too, it's also part of that initial screening and it should be part of the philosophy at the company of whether differentiation is important. And then, you know, is that a value you're willing to kind of feel some pain for? So a lot of times with differentiation, you're going to land on something that some customers will love, some customers will hate. You need to make sure that if you <laughs> buy into that, you know, the mindset that differentiation is important, that you're willing to feel that pain uh, when the time comes in order to kind of live out that value. Awesome. Well, thanks. I know we're, we're getting to towards the end already to uh, part two, amazingly enough. Talk to me a little bit about the future, like trends in the product community. What do you see? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I mean, so I've been thinking about this a lot recently, especially in the vein of flow. So, you know, to you know, share a little bit of a story. When I took over, you know, I had this sense that we kind of needed to not redesign, but basically just take a fresh look at every part of the product and try to figure out what is the best kind of manifestation of all these different features that we had. And that ended up kind of culminating in something that we shipped in the middle of 2020, which we called FlowX, which was this big update. And in my mind, what we're really trying to do there is kind of surface everything that was happening in the product in a better way. As always happens, and it's happened every single time I've done one of these projects in my career, you immediately end that and you suddenly have all these fresh ideas of ways to do what you just did better. <laughs> or you have all these sudden, sudden realizations of, oh, actually, these two things can be one view and this can be a separate view. So we're going through a process right now where we're basically still building on top of that foundation that we set with this broad rethink, kind of remanifestation of flow. And what we're really focusing on is speed, simplicity, clarity, like stuff just to make sure that it's a 10 out of 10 experience every single part of the app that you interact with. And so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what does that mean, you know, for us. And I think there, I don't know, it's probably a little bit of a biased answer, but for me, I've always, I think the way I've always tried to think about it is like, what kind of product would I want to use as a customer? And what sort of product do I want to create as a piece of art? And that last piece probably sounds a little bit silly, but I think that companies like Snapchat, companies like, you know, Zenly, companies like Apple, maybe I'll stop there for now, but do something where they are creating something that is a great piece of software. Meaning it's like, it does what you expect it to do. It's really easy and intuitive to use. But I think one, you know, if you're in this, 
uh, because you just want to create something great, that's not good enough. You, you know, you kind of want to like amp that up a little bit more. And so on that realm, you know, some stuff that I've been thinking about that I'm continuing to try to push forward at Flow is things like sound design. Like how do we bring in really great sound design to the web app, to the desktop app, so that interacting with Flow is as visceral as possible. And I think that can sound a little superficial or a little silly on the surface, but if you really understand, you know, for us, we're building a productivity app. Productivity app inherently means that like you have something you're working towards, you have to expend effort doing all of these individual little tasks. And if you understand human psychology, you know that you need to give people little rewards as often as possible so that they feel motivated and they feel like they're making progress. And I think a part of a productivity app is giving people a sense of progress. And sure, you know, in a simplistic sense, something goes from being an outlined square to a checkbox, but in a better sense, you know, there's a really wonderful, delightful sound effect people can have on. There's, you know, some kind of elegant transition. There's ways of kind of parroting that back to somebody to give them context of how much they've accomplished over the last week or over the last month. So that's kind of on the art side. That's some of the stuff I'm thinking about is, you know, broadly, how do you make something, you know, involve as many senses as possible when someone's using the product? And then another one is just how can you make your product feel like an extension of somebody's body and mind? You know, how can you make it feel like they're superhuman when they're using it? Not a super crisp answer, but I don't know. Some, some no, I think it's a good out. answer, though. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to make a joke about how you incorporate smell, but um, the the, the sound is interesting. <laughs> Can you imagine Slack without the beep, right? Both good yeah. and bad, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, I was thinking about that as you were answering, and I was like, it just wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't feel Slack. No, totally, totally. <laughs> There's good and bad things to that. I think I've developed like a Pavlovian response to Slack sounds, but... Yeah, it's it's interesting when you're thinking about how you can think of a you know your software as an extension of of a person, right? And how you can engage more senses. I know I talked with Raul from Superhuman about making business software more fun, making it more like a game, right? Uh, and giving some of those rewards, both visual and in this case audio, right? Right? Like pleasing sounds when things that are good get accomplished. You know, yes. there, there's ways you can engage with people across a lot of different senses. I, I think that's really interesting to think about. Now, <laughs> as, as we're, uh, we're wrapping up here, you know, we talked about the question you asked, which is a little bit about like great products. And I, I want to know what's your favorite product? Yeah. Ooh, that's a hard one. I have such a hard time answering that question because you know, there's a lot of digital tools that I use. There's apps I have on my iPhone. There's apps I have on my iPad that I really enjoy. But I think for me, what I always come back to is what I, I guess the digital products I aspire to build are like real world things that I really enjoy. And maybe as a cheesy example of that, think about something like Disneyland, where again, it's like beautifully designed. It's a great experience. You have tons of fun while you're there. You know, they incorporate all these different kind of senses into it. You know, if you really geek out, you can find out things like, you know, there's whole books just about the mailboxes that are at Disneyland. You can actually take letters and go and drop them off at Disneyland and they'll process them in their own post office, give it this cool special little stamp, send it off. And so, you know, and that just through that little lens, and I've just just scratched the surface of that example, they've just thought through every single detail. You know, it's beautiful layout, beautiful individual items within that park you know, amazing ways that you can thread that experience together, all these little like hidden gems and Easter eggs that you can find along the way, you know, and and 
there, so I would say like experiences that I enjoy are things just like I, I turn to architecture, I turn to fashion, and I turn to things like hotels, things like uh, this may be a little bit of a bougie answer. But, you know, if you go to a Four Seasons and you see what that level of service is like, it is pretty awe-inspiring for someone who who wants to create great experience for customers, you know, through, through software. Like I think the future of software is doing more and more for customers, you know, and making it this really kind of all intensive, visceral three-dimensional thing. So I don't know if I have a single answer, but the things that I turn to definitely are not software. And I think like just over this weekend, I was, went down a deep rabbit hole of Louis Vuitton and, you know, I don't, I don't own anything Louis Vuitton, I think it's an incredible brand that they've been able to build. You know, if you go and look at their creative process, I was just reading a Harvard Business Review case study from the 90s with the CEO of LVMH, which is this parent company of Louis Vuitton. But, you know, what makes something that literally at like the CEO level that they understand is what I talked about earlier, just how important it is to have a super open-ended, generous creative process where people can try a bunch of different things. And the rabbit hole I went down was, I think there's a bunch of interesting things in terms of what they built, how they approach doing it. But they also, you know, not only do they build clothes, but they're building retail stores. And one thing that they just opened up is this coffee bar. I think it's maybe in Osaka, Japan. And, you know, you look at photos of it and it's like, imagine being the designer on that, where it's like, you have to take a fashion brand that typically is only experienced by clothes and, and models and fashion and turn it into a physical space. You have to figure out what your menu is going to be. And they did, you know, and they just did all these classic, like, uh, it didn't need to happen, but we should go ahead and do it because we're Louis Vuitton. So like one thing that they did was if you get a cappuccino at this bar, they do this crazy, beautiful, I, I, it has to literally be some sort of like robot that's drawing this pattern on the top of the coffee, but it's like this amazing little concentric ring pattern that's going on top of it. And I think, you know, again, as, as, and I'm a you know, designer by background, so I think I identify with this a lot, but it, that just speaks directly to me because I'm like, not only I'm sure have they thought about this being a great cup of coffee, but they're doing it with just this extra generous kind of little touches and details on top. So I think places like that is where I go to get a different point of view and get inspired. And that's what I aspire to build. Yeah. And it's interesting too, that you point out some of the little micro experiences, right? Like you were talking about mailing something from Disneyland, right? And the whole experience around that. And I think about like my iPhone, which is a great product, but what was life-changing for me, and I, I maybe that's a strong word, but really kind of changed how I did business was the AirPods. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that I was like the destroyer of old headsets and cords, they would get caught in things, you know, they just were so inconvenient. And now there's like these little things that stick in your ears, like great sound quality, great audio quality, like, and they're just always there and they're not inconvenient and they're not getting in your way and you can walk around with them and like, you can, they're just like, they were amazing for me. And I didn't, I thought it would be good. And I didn't realize how good, like to the point where like, if I leave them somewhere, like if I leave them in the office and I go home, I was like, I can't use my phone until I go back and get them. You know, it's gotten to that point, which is, which is totally crazy. And, And sometimes it's unexpected too. Like if going, you know, keeping on the iPhone thread, like when they came out with Siri and the little uh, fingerprint to, uh, you know, open your phone. I was like, oh, the fingerprint, that's nice, whatever, gimmick kind of thing. Siri, I'm really excited about. Turns out I never really got into Siri because it never yeah. really worked really well and never really did quite enough. But the fingerprint thing was just changing because now I don't have to type nine characters all the time. In fact, I like it way better than 
the current one of like, you know, there's no way to get to the home screen. There's nothing like that easy navigation, that easy turning things on, that easy work with a mask, right? I was like, really wish I could get that back. <laughs> I know. Just to build on that AirPod, you know, bit that you just shared a second ago, I would totally second that. And, you know, in my, so I have Bose noise canceling headphones. I've always really enjoyed them for working. And I got AirPods and mostly I was like, oh, just, it, yeah, I take a lot of calls. It'll allow me to go outside, walk around, take calls so I can just walk more during the day and, and sit and stand less. So I got the AirPods, you know, and in this latest model, I don't have the, cra- I don't have the crazy headsets. I just have the AirPod Pros, but they have a feature on it where you can choose between transparency. You know, it does kind of, so either you hear all the sounds around you, even with the AirPods in, you hear nothing around you. And, you know, we have a two week old at home now. And so at night now, you know, I'm getting a lot less sleep than I used to. And I need to be listening for, for cries and just stuff more often. And so one thing I just discovered the other day is like, man, what a lifesaver it is to have this transparency mode on AirPods. Because if I had my noise canceling headphones on, I'm not going to hear the baby. I'm not going to be a bad dad. But now I can, you know, listen to music, watch a show, have the transparency on. When my baby starts crying, I can immediately go over to it. And that's something where, again, asking an unexpected question, like, people hate pulling their headphones, you know, putting them on, taking them off. How, what can we do to allow people to keep them on and still interact with the world around them? And I think, again, that's like, that's an insight that likely came from serendipity rather than some like perfectly constructed brief. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So anyway, we're at our last question. So uh, three words to describe yourself. um, Maybe curious, obsessive, and optimistic. You know, I think, and just to expand on all those really quickly, but, you know, curious for me, I think is just such an essential quality in in life, you know, especially in the time that we live in where anything you want to learn about is seconds away, you know, in a, in a web browser, I think it's a superhuman gift to be curious and to lean into that curiosity. You know, the optimistic side, I had a really great chat recently with Kevin Kelly, who's the founder of Wired and has done a bunch of incredible stuff. But in my mind, he's one of the most optimistic voices about technology. So for anyone listening who's at all jaded about the recent Facebook stuff or tech, you know, breaking up big technology companies or is technology good or bad, I highly recommend you go and read Kevin Kelly's What Technology Wants because it's just this beautiful, optimistic take on what technology can do and how it fits into our evolution and, and our future and why it's so important. And then, you know, the last piece obsessive, like it's, I recognize that there are good and bad qualities to that. But for me, I just love, like when I'm working on a problem, I just love coming back to it, having it in my brain all the time, thinking of little tweaks on it throughout the day. I'll leave it there. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been great. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me on again. 